0: In his epistles to the Philippians and the Colossians, Paul teaches and exhorts many things, but both of these epistles have their epicenter in a messianic poem that teaches the nature of Christ, designed above all to teach us one specific doctrine, that of his condescension. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me for gospel doctrine a podcast where i teach the lessons of the come follow me curriculum of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints today's lesson number 40 new testament philippians and colossians i can do all things through christ which strengtheneth me as always should you care to email the program send me a message at gt at and i'd like to thank those of you who have left a review on itunes or in your uh, podcast listening app I read all of those reviews, and I'm very touched by those of you who have either left a five-star rating or uh, a written review. They they help many people to find the program. And I also thank those of you who have been spreading the word verbally or in person. Uh, that's, that's very much appreciated. And I invite your questions about upcoming lessons, about past lessons, or about any subject in life for which you want a scriptural commentary. And especially now, I invite your suggestions. Before the end of the year, I want to do at least one more special episode. And I probably will do that in December. And so if you want a special episode about some topic that has to do with the New Testament, it will be outside of the normal curriculum, that's what our special episodes are, then uh, send send an email and, and make your request. Today's uh, question comes from Robin. It's more of a more of a comment. But Robin says, as I was reading tonight, the chapter heading for Colossians 2 jumped out at me, quote, the handwriting against us was nailed to the cross of Christ, end quote. I am hoping you are planning to expound on this. It just seems so beautiful, and I can't wait to hear what you have to teach us about it. Never fear, Robin. Uh, That is a big part of the lesson for this week. In fact, aside from the poem in the first chapter of Colossians, that's the most important part of Colossians, and that's to be found in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So before we begin, a little historical background. Now, the story of the Philippians is found, or Paul's first encounter with the Philippians, is found in Acts chapter 16, and this is just a beautiful chapter because Paul is wandering around doing his missionary journey. He's actually trying to head for Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and the Spirit tells him not to go there. And so Paul is in the area around northern Greece, Macedonia, and he sees a vision. And there's a man, in, in, in this vision, he sees a man of Macedonia that says, please come unto us and help us. And from that vision, Paul understands not only that they need the gospel, but that God will give them success there. And out of love and mercy, Paul and his companions travel into Macedonia. And uh, so... So to understand a little bit about Philippi, if you've ever seen the play Julius Caesar, you remember that Brutus and Cassius were these two conspirators who didn't like the fact that Caesar was grasping at power. Before the time of Julius Caesar, Rome had been a republic, and it was obvious that Julius was going to turn it into an empire and become the the emperor. They didn't like this. They wanted it to be a republic, and so uh, they famously came upon him one day in the Roman form and stabbed him. Now, this is ob- obviously a fictionalization, but it, there were really people named Brutus and Cassius, and also on the other side, uh, loyal to Caesar, were Mark Antony and Octavian. Octavian. And they, they declared war on each other, and the final battle in this, in this protracted war actually happened around the area of Philippi. And uh, Octavian and Mark Antony won, And as a reward, they allowed many of their soldiers to claim lands around this area and retire there. So this became uh, a center really of loyalty and nationalism towards Caesar and towards the empire of Rome. And so that's why it's so interesting that Paul went there because Paul's message was, the central part of Paul's message was that Jesus is our king. Messiah means king, right? So Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, means that we have crowned a man, this this follower of a sect of a, of a small province of Rome, several hundred miles away, that none of you have heard of, or if you have, you, you sort of think that it's a backwater province. And yet we're telling you that this person there, this, this promised leader, this prophesied Messiah, is now the king over the whole world. And yet... We're also telling you that he has died and he's risen again, and he's not meant to rule it physically. That we're we're also going to be loyal subjects of Caesar, and the the history of this area, the makeup of this area, the demography of this area, and the culture of this area, were not amenable to that message, and as a result, Paul in his first. Visit is already persecuted there, so you remember he has some success among uh, the women of the city. He converts a, a dye seller named Lydia, and he also. But then uh, there's a there's a young girl who has the a familiar spirit who's following him and his companions around, and she's saying these men are uh, followers of Christ or followers of God. Listen to what they say, but it's obvious that she's been possessed of some sort of spirit, and Paul doesn't like the fact that she seems to be coerced in her utterances. And so, eventually, he casts the spirit out, and the the owners of this girl, she was obviously a slave, they are upset with Paul that he's cost them their livelihood because they use this slave girl to make pronouncements to cast fortunes. And so then they complain of Paul and say, he's preaching things that are against what we believe. And and it's not made clear in the scripture, in the in chapter 16 of Acts, exactly what it was that they were upset about. But we can assume that it's the fact that Paul is proclaiming that Jesus is the risen Lord, and, and our king, our rightful king, is actually Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, from far away Judea, right? That just doesn't make sense to the Romans. And so they cast him into jail, and they, it says, many stripes were laid upon them. So, Paul is tortured and imprisoned, and not only bound, but he's put in stocks, hand and foot, and put in jail. Freed, if you remember, by an earthquake, and all everyone in in the entire jail, all of their bands spring open, and the jailer is going to kill himself because he's lost all of his charges. And Paul says, "Do yourself no harm. We're all here. We haven't left the jail," and so that he he has this very fascinating interaction with the jailer, where the jailer comes in and says, what must I do to be saved? If you remember, Paul goes to his home and converts his whole family. He's baptized that night, and then in the morning they send to release Paul. So this, this is the background of Paul's exchange, his relationship with the Philippians, and the both of these epistles that we're going to study today are written from an imprisonment of Paul, now we don't know exactly, tradition says that uh, perhaps these were written from Paul's final imprisonment. Now he had one imprisonment in Rome. If you remember, Paul had several imprisonments. One was in Ephesus, one was in Caesarea Philippi, which is actually part of Judea. So it's not the same Philippi. Uh, that's the, the seaport that is closest to Jerusalem. It's, it's the capital, it's the Roman capital of the region. But Philippi itself was much further north, obviously, in Greece. So uh, Paul had an imprisonment in Caesarea Philippi. He had an imprisonment in Rome where he was under house arrest. That's the end of the book of Acts. But then according to tradition, Paul had another missionary journey. Perhaps he made it to Spain. And eventually to end his life, he ended up in Rome and was executed there, beheaded. And there's a church there that commemorates the traditional site where this happened. And so it's believed that Paul was, he met his end in Rome, and it's believed that uh, some, if not many, of his epistles were written from this final imprisonment. And so we have two of them today, uh, Philippians and Colossians. Now, if you want to, it's at the very end of Colossians where he talks about the fact that he's in bonds. And in Philippians, he's writing several times, he's writing that uh, he's suffering, he's, he's being persecuted for teaching that Jesus is Lord, and uh, he has he, the the Philippians have actually sent a messenger to Paul to bring him a care package, you might say, while he's in he's imprisoned. And so we'll talk about that. Philippians is a an epistle that is not po- probably not in chronological order, meaning uh, Paul it, it might contain fragments from more than one letter, and they may have been put back together out of order. Uh, that's that's the general scholarly consensus, by the way. So there's there's no real way to know. But um, for example, uh, Epaphroditus, the messenger that is sent to bring Paul this care package, uh, in the in the end is sick. But in the beginning, he's he's leaving back with a reply, with Paul's thanks and with um, a letter for everyone. And then at the end, he's talking about how the Epaphroditus is sick unto death. So already we know that chronologi- chronologically this this epistle doesn't quite line up. And so the real way to read Philippians is not necessarily to read it from beginning to end and think that it has one consistent narrative, but instead to understand that it's written in fragments and that we can take each of these chunks as sort of a whole. And they, they all rotate around this what I what I referred to in the introduction of of the episode today as a messianic poem that's found in chapter two, and instead of spending a lot of time breaking apart each of these individual chunks, which I could which we could do and we could spend time on, uh, what we're going to do is briefly cover the the rest of philippians and then i'm going to get to this messianic poem and the reason i'm going to do that is because it makes a perfect bridge to then talk about colossians because colossians also has a very profound and very beautiful messianic poem that that ties in wonderfully with the with the poem in philippians and so these two poems are are very similar and yet um they have overlap, and they also have things that are unique to each. So we'll talk about what the poems teach us about Christ, and then we'll talk about the rest of Colossians. So the poems will sort of be the centerpiece and the main part of what we'll talk about today. So briefly, we'll cover chapter 1, and one of the main ideas in chapter 1 is that Paul tells these saints, he, he says, Look, I, I believe that the the sufferings that I've had, including my present imprisonment, have all gone toward actually giving the message that I teach more notoriety. In fact, uh, I can see that the plans of God are being fulfilled by the sufferings that I am engaged in. In fact, uh, Paul at one point says, he says, look, there are two ways that this could go. I could end up dying, or I could end up surviving and being released and, and being allowed to continue my work. And, and this is sort of fascinating. It's called what, there's a Latin name for it that we'll talk about in a second, but um, it's Paul's desire to die because Paul says, actually, for me, for myself, what I would prefer to do is to depart. In other words, to be at the end of my ministry and to leave this life and be together again with Christ. That would be my preference. That would be best for me. But what would be best for you, not necessarily you, the Philippians, but you, the human race, and, and it's not pride on Paul's part. He's absolutely right. What would be best for you would be for me to continue my ministry and to convert more people. And either way, God wins, right? Either way, I win and God wins because it's it's more blessed if I continue on the earth because I know that until the end of my life, my entire life is devoted to missionary work. Uh, if you remember, this is actually the, the same choice that uh, the Nephite disciples made after christ came and visited them and taught them he asked them what they would like and, and some of them said you know when my life is over i want to come and be with be rejoined with you in your kingdom and some said we want to tarry on the earth because we know that'll be better for the earth and even though it's harder for us and uh so interesting that that paul is also expressing that there are two ways that his calling could go and the end of his calling could come so that's kind of the point of chapter one: is that Paul says, no matter what should happen to me or what should happen to any of us, uh, if if we remain faithful to the light that we've received and to the gospel of Christ, then Christ wins and we win. And this uh, this desire that Paul had to to leave this life is called his "cupio dissolvi. This is actually a Latin phrase, even though this is written in Greek, and it's. The, the translation of that is, I wish to be dissolved, cupio dissolvi. I wish to be dissolved, I wish to have my life ended. And uh, so I'll read you that verse very quickly. Actually, several verses starting in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. In verse 21, for, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So there, there's his his expression of the, the two ways that his life and his ministry could go. Now in chapter 2, as Paul often does, he calls for unity among the saints in Philippi, and uh, he has this wonderful poem that we'll discuss at the end. And after the poem, he says, um, Wherefore, my beloved, this is verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I just wanted to talk briefly about these two verses because they they seem to be in contradiction. And And it gives rise to a great number of misunderstandings in the Christian world about what it is, how it is that we have salvation. So on the one hand, in verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, Paul says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, uh, not only do, the, do your actions come from God, but the very desire for your actions come from God. So how do we reconcile these two verses? How do we make it make sense that we have to work out our own salvation and that it is that everything good that we do or even want comes from God? So to answer that question, I mean, I don't know that there's any answer that's absolutely Uh, ironclad from this text that you could use to convince every Christian the world over. But there are a couple of things that seem clear. One is, in verse 13, God has already done an amazing amount of work in us. He's changed the things that we do, and he's changed the things that we want. When we've decided to follow Christ, he he has effected a mighty change in us. And so that work is already done. It's sort of like the basis from which we all begin. And the key to tying the two of these statements together is the word for at the beginning of verse 13. So we have to work out our own salvation for it is God which worketh in us. In other words, we have to do some work because God is working in us. That's an interesting way of looking at it. So God has already done some work and therefore we have a duty in front of us. And the, the amount of work that we have to do isn't exactly clear but we have to do it with fear. The The real clue is that we have to do it with fear and trembling. So I think this question is worth pondering on. What exactly does it mean for us to work out our own salvation? Because obviously we're saved by Christ. Incidentally, this is an idea which is expressed at least twice in the Book of Mormon, almost with these same words, once in Alma and once in Mormon, and uh, that you can find those references in the in the LDS scripture footnote, if you're if you're looking for them, so how do we work out our salvation? What does it mean to work on our salvation? What kind of work can we do when everything comes because of God? Now, in chapter three, Paul gives us another example of something we've we've heard now many times, which is uh, sort of a mediation in this ongoing conflict between uh, the Jews, the people of the circumcision who'd converted to Christianity and those who had not converted first to Judaism before becoming Christians. And he's telling them the same message that he always does, which is, look, if if you think you're finding Christ in these outward observances, the, the, the observances themselves don't do any harm, but neither do they do you good. What matters is how you follow Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is the one... Who makes all of these things have meaning, and they the, the requirement for them passed away in Him, and I, I could talk more about this, but He does such a better job in Colossians that we'll actually uh, talk about the way that He handles this topic there. So uh, I I do recommend chapter three. One of the things that uh, one of the points that He makes here better than probably anywhere else is He gives His bona fides as a Jew. He says, "Look, if you want to talk about being a faithful Jew." I was more faithful than anyone, I, to the point where I was blameless under the law, and I persecuted the church because they, they weren't following the law of Moses the way I thought they should, and they were following after this other prophet. And so, if you think that there's anybody who could tell you what it means to be a faithful and observant Jew, that person is me. And yet, here I am telling you how important it is to follow Christ. In fact, uh, he uses the word dung in the, in the King James Version, All of these things that I used to believe in and put such stock in, I count them but dung today that I may win Christ, he says in verse 8. And uh, that's sort of the main idea of chapter 3. And chapter 4 is notable for a couple of reasons. One is uh, Paul talks about how we can, with thanksgiving and with prayer and with righteousness, we can attain that peace of God which passeth all understanding in verse 7. And we can keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then uh, the for Latter Day Saints, the next verse is significant to us because um, the thirteenth article of faith, many, which many of you can recite from memory, has its origins here. Uh, we believe in being honest, true, benevolent, chaste, and doing good to all men. All these things come from verse eight uh, from the more accurately from the Joseph Smith translation of verse 8, and in one point it says, we, uh, indeed we may say that we follow the admonition of Paul, and that admonition is found here. The point of the admonition is that we don't believe all things are found in the scriptures or in spiritual teachings. We believe that we can find Good things in every walk of life. We can, we can find them in work. We can find them as as Joseph Smith later would put it, out of the best books we can find words of wisdom. And so there are wonderful uh, proceeds from God's creation to be found in in all of life's endeavors if we're looking for them. Anything that is just, anything that is of good report, it actually is part of God's creation, and it and it tends to. Testify of the goodness of God and the power of God and the fact that God's gifts are myriad and they're and they're constantly manifesting themselves in our life and so that's the that's the point of verse eight that's the point of the thirteenth article of faith Uh, so those verses seven and eight are two significant verses for Latter-day Saints so that's kind of the rest of the book of Philippians now let's go back to chapter two and examine this messianic poem. So the poem itself begins in uh, verse 6 and continues until verse 11. I'm going to read it first in the King James Version, then we'll read it in another translation. We'll get uh, a sense of what's being communicated here, and then we'll talk about the main idea and what other scriptures. I have a ton of scriptures that I want to address that Paul is bringing in by reference. He's incorporating by reference into this letter. Uh, Okay, so... There's an introduction in verse 5, but it's not part of the poem. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, this is verse 6 now, this is the beginning of the poem, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this, this poem, if you could sum it up in one word, that word would be condescension. So, Today, the word condescension has a different meaning than it used to, right? If we say that someone is being condescending, what we're saying is that person thinks he's better than me, and he's he spoke to me in a condescending tone as if he's pretending that we're equal, but I can really tell he doesn't think we're equal. That's not what it's always meant. In fact, if you've ever watched the movie or the show Pride and Prejudice, there's a particular... Character in there. He's sort of a humorous clergyman, and he always talks about the condescension that he enjoys from his noble patroness, the Lady Catherine de Burgh. And the point is that this noble woman has agreed to invite him to dinner, to socialize with him, and so he enjoys her condescension. She is above him in social station, and this wasn't as offensive an idea in that century, in the 19th century England, as it, as it would be today. Today we believe all, all people are equal, but back then they felt like noble people were above them, and so if, if someone was willing to spend time with them, wow, that was condescension, that was amazing. So that's kind of the idea of the condescension of God. Jesus Christ truly is above us. There's no uh, pretense in it, and there's no actual false pride in the fact that Jesus is above us, and yet he was willing to make himself one of us. Jesus Christ is God, that, and Paul is making that clear. Okay? So first of all, uh, when he says being in the form of God, so there are a number of ways that this, this verse could be rendered. Uh, I'm going to read you now from the New International Version. This is, again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-11. through 11. Uh, Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So uh, in in the King James Version, we have in verse 6, who being in the form of God, and in, uh, in the New International Version, we have who being, in very nature, God. Uh, the word in Greek is homo Ioma, which is the likeness. It, there is uh, a little bit of difficulty and a little bit of risk in saying uh, this is a word that would have been used in the Old Testament, because as, as we've talked about many times, New Testament is Greek. And for us to say, well, we know the equivalent word in the Old Testament there's a little bit of risk there because we, we're not 100% sure that we'd get it right. But if you remember, Adam was made in the likeness of God. And when he was made in the likeness of God, so in the image of God, that we, we believe that this, this Hebrew word that's used in the book of Genesis and elsewhere in the book of Daniel, for example, when there's an image that they're called upon to worship, same word, this image, this likeness is uh, the same idea. This this is what this is the idea that Paul is bringing in. So, when he says Christ was in the likeness of God, uh, he's his readers are going to hear this echoes of this passage from Genesis chapter one, where humans are created in the likeness of God and they're given a charge, and that charge is that they are to rule over, have dominion over the world, and they are given. Their, their very nature is to reign. The nature of man and woman is to reign in the earth and have stewardship and dominion over all of God's creations. And so that's what is being said about Christ here. And then it's also being said, it's one step further, right? Because that phrase is followed by the phrase, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Or in... Uh, in the New International Version, he, he did not consider it equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Now, the word um, something to be used to his own advantage is, actually has one word in in Greek, which is harpagmon. Now, this word can be translated in a couple of ways. One is something to be grasped at, and the other is something to be exploited. And those, those two different translations have two shades of meaning. In one sense, or in one case, equality with God would be something that Christ already enjoyed. So if we translate it as, uh, he didn't see equality with God as something to be exploited or used to his own advantage, then Christ already had equality with God, but he's not going to rest on his laurels, you might say. He's going to be willing to come down to earth in the form of a man, even though he's equal with God, he's not going to use it to his advantage. If we translate this as uh, Christ did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped at, then the meaning is he didn't already have equality with God and he, he could have reached for it, but instead he humbled himself. So there's a little bit of controversy there among Christian scholars about whether Christ was equal with God before he came down to earth. But this is actually one of the few places where it talks about the premortal existence of Christ and the fact that Christ was co-eternal with God and that he had some relationship with God that had a negotiation involved. In any case, everyone agrees that after Christ's ministry, he was equal with God uh, in, in verses nine and 10, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So after Christ did worked out his, his atonement, it's clear that he is equal with God and there's, uh, there's nothing to use to his own advantage anymore. There's no longer any question about how he's going to treat this. Now, what exactly is the relationship between Christ and God? Are they the same being? Are they different beings? Um, most people would say that's not exactly clear here, and that's why the, the doctrine of the Trinity is so confusing. It, it makes it seem in some cases like they are the same, and in other cases like they're not. Now, what Joseph Smith saw in the first vision was a, uh, such an astounding revelation to him, precisely because it became clear to him that these were two separate beings. Nevertheless, it's not quite that simple, because so many places in the Scriptures it says, Jesus says himself, My Father and I are one, and that's not just, it's its more complicated than uh, we share a purpose, we share goals, uh, we share uh, so much of our nature, right? It, they are one in a, in a profound sense that you and I can't quite understand. And the poem in Colossians talks more about that. So we'll get more, uh, we'll explore that idea philosophically a little bit more when we get there. But before we do, I want to talk more about the idea of condescension. So, uh, if you remember in 1 Nephi chapter 8, Lehi has this vision of the tree of life, and he tells it to his children, and then Nephi says, man, I really want to know the interpretation of that vision. And so he prays. And in chapter 11, Nephi is, has this visitation with an angel where he is given the interpretation. And so uh, begins the part that I mean, really, this goes through the whole chapter. There's not a specific passage that I can point to. But it starts in verse 9, I think, and continues until verse 33, pretty much, which is uh, Nephi wants to know the interpretation of the tree of life. And the angel replies with another question. He says, do you know the meaning of the condescension of God? And Nephi, you know, he says, well, you know, I'm, I, I know many things, but I don't know the meaning of all things. In, this, in essence, he's saying, no, I don't know what that means. So then the angel says, look and Nephi sees Mary, and then he sees Mary uh, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and then she appears with a baby. And then the angel says to Nephi, do you now know what, is, what is the tree means? And Nephi says, yes, now I know what the tree means. It means the love of God. And so then the angel says, look, I'm going to show you the condescension of God, and then Nephi beholds the life of Christ, the mortal ministry of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, his suffering and death. And the angel says, this is the condescension of God. So it's the, the, point, the point I'm trying to make is that Nephi doesn't know what the tree of life represents. Then he sees Mary bring Jesus into the world. And then he says, I now know, that the tree of life means the love of God, which sheds itself abroad in the hearts of men. So when he sees Jesus come to earth, he understands something about the love of God. This this is a profound truth to him. And then the condescension he still doesn't understand condescension of God, but. Uh, but he's now ready for the lesson once he understands the love of God. So the the profound love of our heavenly Father, as as is made clear in John chapter three verse sixteen, God loved the world so that he gave the world his so much that he gave the world his only begotten Son. Uh, that is the condescension of God as an act of supreme love, profound love that that passes our understanding, and that is what Paul is trying to explain here in. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, but he's also doing much more than that. So in the, in the language that Paul uses, when he says, being found in appearance as a man, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You may hear echoes in that of Isaiah chapter 53. There was no form, he, he grew up before him as a tender plant, and there was no form or com- comeliness that men should desire him. That was Isaiah's description of the suffering servant of God. Someone who had made himself, uh, in verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. If you remember, we've talked about this scripture a number of times, but it's been a little while. There uh, was a particular title that Jesus favored over every other title that he applied to himself more than anything else. And that title was the Son of Man. And we've talked about this scripture before. Daniel chapter 7 is where it comes from. And in that chapter, there are, it's, a, it's a dream that the prophet Daniel has, where these beasts come out of the ocean and they, and they trample and kill people. And nobody can stop them. Until the Ancient of Days arrives and he's he's on a, a throne of flame, and the flame consumes the beasts. And then uh, out of the clouds of heaven comes the Son of Man, one who is like unto the Son of Man, and all dominion and power is given to, into his hands forever. And uh, most readers of this believe the Ancient of Days is God the Father. Uh, as Latter day Saints, our interpretation is that it's, that it's Adam. And so. In one interpretation, uh, the Son of Man arrives before the throne of God and receives a kingdom. In in another interpretation, uh, Adam is there and then Christ comes and and it has a more humble aspect than even Adam does. And yet the dominion and the power is given to Christ rather than to Adam. So um, regardless of how you interpret that, the point is that all dominion is given to someone who is in the likeness of the Son of Man. What exactly does that phrase mean? What does Son of Man mean, and why did Jesus apply it to himself so much? First of all, he wanted uh, Jesus. What Jesus wanted to do was to identify with this passage in Daniel. But also, what did the what did that passage mean? When you're in the likeness of the Son of Man, what it means is you look like a mortal man. That really is what it means. It means that there wasn't anything special about him to look at, other than the fact that he came in the clouds, he came in the glory of heaven, he descended from heaven, and arrived in front of the throne, and then was given a kingdom, but he looked so humble. He looked like a person. The son of man, the phrase is used a lot in Ezekiel, uh, ben Adam, the son of Adam. In other words, Uh, someone who was given, Adam, remember in in Genesis chapter 1, Adam is given the dominion over all things. But then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam becomes subject to death, obedient to death, and subject to the powers of a fallen world. So on the one hand, created in the likeness of God with a royal heritage and a charge to rule and a purpose to reign, and on the other hand, being made subject to death. And so here Paul is telling us Christ was called from heaven from the beginning of time from the foundations of the world to reenact the fall. He has the nature of God. He has the appearance of man. Now, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says something to the chief priest, right? He's in. He's on trial for his life, and uh, the, the chief priest is getting in his face and saying, Look, if you're the Christ, just tell us. And Jesus says... In Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the son of the blessed, and hereafter you'll see the son of man descending from the clouds. Now, this was a, a very loaded phrase. Jesus is clearly quoting. There's no one who could mistake it. It would be as if I said to you, as, I've, as I mentioned when we studied Mark chapter 14, it would be as if I said to you, Hello, I'm, I, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepared to die. right? It's obvious that I'm placing myself in the role of, of a character from the princess bride but when i do that to myself i'm also putting you in the role of count Rugen, this evil six-fingered man who kills people for fun and sport and studies pain and tortures innocent people so i'm the good guy you're the bad guy that's what jesus has just said to uh, to caiaphas as caiaphas is is challenging what jesus's claims right And so Caiaphas is totally scandalized that Jesus would take upon himself the identity of this Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. So what is Daniel chapter 7 about? Who are these beasts that come out of the the ocean to trample everyone around them? Well, they are the kingdoms of men. And not only are they kingdoms of men, but they're kingdoms of men that act in a certain way. They act unjustly. And Jesus showed that the, the people who are condemning him were these beasts. That's what he was saying is, I am the son of man, and therefore you're the beasts who've been trampling and who will eventually be consumed in the flame that comes out from the throne of God. And this was so offensive that they all immediately condemned him to death. They didn't need to hear any more witnesses. When Jesus uttered these words, they were upset. They, they tore their clothing. They spit on him. And that was the end of the trial of Jesus, as unjust as it was. The ironic thing is, they immediately went, in in acting in the way that they were acting, they immediately proved his point. They showed that they were beasts in the form of a government. When a government acts unjustly, and when it takes away the rights or the lives of the people under its control, then it is acting like one of these beasts that Daniel saw. That is the nature of men is to create governments that eventually serve a man rather than serve the, serve the people at the top, right? Whether it's a man or a woman, they serve those in power rather than those that they're designed to protect. And Jesus Christ, God, on the other hand, when, when they rule, then it's completely just, it's a perfect government. And that is uh, shown by, the even though that Jesus appears in the form of a man, he has a dominion that will never pass away. As Paul says, because he was willing to humble himself, then God will exalt him higher than everyone. And at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Okay, so that's Philippians. That's the Messianic poem in Philippians. Now we switch over to Colossians chapter 1 and this poem is found from verse 15 through verse 20 and uh, we've talked about parallelism many times where the same message will be communicated twice using slightly different words and this is a parallel poem so if you uh, you can kinda read it in you might call them stanzas you can kinda read it in three verse chunks um, first of all, it talks about Christ as the creator of all things. And that's the first stanza. And then it talks about Christ as or the physical creator, right? He, he brought the earth into existence. And then the second stanza is Christ bringing spiritually everything back into perfection or back into union with God, creating us again. So obviously one is the creation and one is the atonement and the spiritual creation. This idea was expounded upon in uh, a 1993 talk by uh, by our current prophet, then elder Russell M. Nelson, and I believe it was called uh, Constancy Amid Change, and he, he mentions the three pivotal events of spirit, human spiritual history, the creation, the fall, and the atonement. Each is a different type of creation of God, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying Christ was the the creator of all things, but then he was the means by which God was able to reconcile, bring us all into one, and therefore create us again, because we needed to be created again. We needed to be perfected. Okay, I'm going to read this poem to you now. This is the King James Version, Col- uh, Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. Who is the image of the invisible God? The firstborn of every creature. Now, before we go any farther, I, uh, I want to mention the fact that the Gospel of John had not yet been written. But if John, let's say that John had a PhD in writing Gospels, right? John was obviously brilliant. His Gospel is astounding in its organization, in its structure, and in its eloquence. Um, but if John had a PhD in writing Gospels, this is where he got his masters, where John talks about in the beginning was the Word. This is either where he got some of those ideas or he was at least highly influenced by the writings of Paul to the Colossians, this particular Messianic poem, uh, because I'm going to compare some of this, uh, this language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the Logos... In Greek, is has been translated as word, but it means many things, and, and specifically it means that aspect of God that can be seen and experienced by humans, because God is inscrutable, God is invisible to man. This was the Jewish belief. Okay, so now we're back to Colossians 1, verse 15. Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. You can you can very clearly see the first couple of verses of the of the Gospel of John in that verse alone. Uh, We continue, and you'll and you'll continue to see this parallel here. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. Okay, in other words, without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, this is very similar language to John chapter 1. Jesus Christ was the creator, and he is part of God. He is an aspect of God. He's the part of God that we can experience. This is, again, another expression of the idea of condescension, that Jesus came from heaven where he lived with God, he enjoyed a coexistence with God that is the nature of which is beyond our current understanding and at some point he expressed a willingness to to for Christ willingness and duty were one and the same thing right it's it's all comes out of the love of god the fact that he knew that there was a need for us all to be reconciled to god his decision was already made he knew that it would involve leaving the presence of god for a time he knew that it would involve taking upon himself the 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 flesh of a man, and reenacting the fall, and thereby becoming subject unto death, and, but he also knew that he was the only person that could undo the effects of the fall, and walk back into the presence of the Father, and take us all with him. And so, this first part of the poem is expressing that Jesus was the creator, and that really the story of the relationship of God to his children is about Jesus. Then in verse uh, 18, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. Okay, so now we're talking about Jesus bringing, uh, walking back. He he walked into creation, became subject to death, and now he's walking back out of it. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That's verse 19 of, uh, of Colossians chapter 1. And having made peace through the blood of the cross... By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now you may recognize that also in the other messianic poem in Philippians, it talks about things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. And uh, if, in case you're wondering, things on the earth are terrestrial in Greek. Things in heaven are celestial, and things under the earth. Actually, there's a name called telus, which was uh, a Latin word meaning the ground or something that was uh, under the ground. It's sort of synonymous with the kingdom of Hades. And we don't, we don't actually know. There's, it's not given in any of the scriptures that talk about the celestial kingdom, what its etymology is. Uh, but it's interesting that Paul is talking about the three kingdoms of glory as he talks about the fact that Christ will be Lord of all. Okay, I'm going to read this poem again, this time in the Good News Translation. This is in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Christ is the visible likeness of the invisible God. He is the firstborn Son, superior to all created things. For through Him, God created everything, in heaven and on earth, the seen and the unseen things, including spiritual powers, lords, rulers, and authorities. God created the whole universe through Him and for Him. Christ existed before all things, and in union with him all things have their proper place. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the source of the body's life. He is the firstborn son who was raised from death in order that he alone might have the first place in all things. For it was by God's own decision that the son has in himself the full nature of God. Through the son then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross, and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. This expresses very similar ideas, but in a little more contemporary language, that uh, on the one hand, God created everything through Christ, and then he brought us all back to him through Christ. So created us in what Elder Nelson called a paradisiacal creation, and then redeemed us in what Elder Nelson called an immortal creation another point that I'll make is uh, when when God makes peace with us through the, uh, the, verse 20 uh, this is now Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself this is uh, now now Paul is calling in imagery from the temple because we are made one with God in Hebrew philosophy by the blood of the lamb that is shed on the day of atonement this blood is carried into the temple through the holy place, which has imagery sewn into the walls of the Garden of Eden, and it's carried into the Holy of Holies, which symbolizes the presence of God that existed before the Garden of Eden. So we travel from an earthly place to a, a paradise, a place of paradise and creation, to a place of glory and celestial dwelling with God. And the, the blood of the lamb makes this journey and travels from man to God. And it travels through this shared space, which is the temple. So in these short six verses, Paul is explaining that Jesus Christ is our creator, that he's our redeemer, he's the means by which, and not only is he one with God, but he's the means by which God will redeem us. And he is the truth to which the temple pointed all along. The temple was the type, and Jesus Christ Is the underlying meaning the temple was the form, and Jesus is the substance. One more point I'll make about uh, this this particular poem in verse 19: It pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Now that word "dwell" also shows up in John chapter one. Remember in John one, John says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word "dwell." in John 1.14, is eskinosin, which means to encamp, uh, literally translated, it means to have one's tabernacle. So if, if Christ dwelt among us, he had his tabernacle here with us. This is what John says. And he's getting this idea from Paul. It, it, you can see it so clearly as we discuss it. So here in Colossians 1.19, the word that is, na- that is here translated as dwell is katoikeo which means to live permanently. The, the way that the King James Version re- renders this is, it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. But let's read it again in the Good News Translation. It was by God's own decision that the Son has in Himself the full nature of God. They don't use the word dwell in this translation, but the word dwell does exist in the Greek, katoikeia, which means to live permanently, to be exactly at home god dwelt in christ the father dwelt in christ in this way in the permanent way god god the father is exactly at home in christ the nature of god and christ have the same nature and the way that christ lives with us is that he encamps with us he has his tabernacle with us and this tabernacle is shared space it's the overlap between heaven and earth and so that should tell you A little bit about the nature of condescension, that Christ is truly at home with God. He lives permanently with God and he has the fullness of the Father, and yet he encamps with us. That's what it means for him to condescend to be with us. Now, normally when we think about the condescension of Christ, it's in a context of us needing to be grateful. Aren't we so grateful that Christ was willing to come down to earth to to leave his heavenly home and That's of course very true, but that's not the point that Paul is making. The point that Paul is making is, let's consider the nature of the person who's doing this leaving of his heavenly home, right? Let's understand who it is that's coming to earth, and let's understand what it is that he brought with him when he came. He brought with him the nature of God and encased it in a tabernacle of flesh. Now that takes us right into uh, Colossians chapter 2, and Again, Paul is dealing with this idea that some people are telling them that they have to be circumcised, that they have to obey Jewish holidays, that they have to eat kosher. And Paul is saying, look, these are burdens that were placed on the Jews in order to point them to a truth that would later come. But they aren't the truth themselves. And so this is found, this idea is found in verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holiday, or of the new moon, or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So that's the very idea was just explaining, that the law of Moses was a type, but Christ was the idea underlying it. Okay, so we skipped over the important part. When he's talking about earlier, Paul is still talking about the law of Moses, and he says, you... Being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. So when Christ came, he he not only did away with the need for these observances in the law of Moses, but he also forgave us our sins. The end of verse 13, having, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out, now we're in verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. I want to read these verses in several different translations because it's expressed so beautifully in so many different ways, but the ideas are the same. So uh, the the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, this is sort of a promissory note. That's what it is. It's like a mortgage. We we owe a great debt, and this is the note that signifies our debt. And what, God, what uh, Christ has done is he... He forgave our debt by nailing it to the cross. What a beautiful, beautiful metaphor that Christ is willing to forgive not only our sins, not only redeem us from our sins and from the fall of Adam, but also do away with the law of Moses, these ordinances that were grievous to be born. And that we, and that made us, as Paul has expressed elsewhere, that made us aware of our sinful nature and caused us to, quote unquote, die, right? The law of Moses worked death in us, as he has said. It made us aware of how sinful we were, and it also was very difficult to fulfill. And both of those things caused us spiritual death, caused us separation from God. So Jesus Christ is willing to redeem us from the fall, forgive our sins, and fulfill the ordinances and the requirements of the law of Moses all in one one action by being crucified on the cross and dying for us. That's just verse 14. Now verse 15. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Now that verse isn't quite as clear in the King James Version. It's not uh, quite as profound and quite as powerful as the ideas that it's expressing. So let's read it in the Good News Translation. We'll start back in verse 13. This is uh, Colossians verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. You were at one time spiritually dead, Because of your sins and because you were Gentiles without the law. But God has now brought you to life with Christ. God forgave us all our sins. Verse 14. He canceled the unfavorable record of our debts with its binding rules and did away with it completely by nailing it to the cross. Verse 15. And on that cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession." Now, this is a powerful statement about Christ's, if, you, if you've if you ever heard the term Via Dolorosa, about Christ's walk, where he carried the cross and he went to Golgotha and he was crucified. This, this translation is calling that his victory procession. And why would that be true? For a clue about why that's the case, the, that, now you understand why I spent so much time talking about Daniel chapter 7, because what happened was Jesus called Caiaphas, he said, you're the beast and I'm the son of man in the reenactment, in the story, of, in the vision, the metaphor of Daniel chapter 7. And Caiaphas didn't understand it, but then he immediately acted to abrogate his own laws, his own charges under the law of Moses. In order to condemn a prisoner to death, they had so many different strictures that they had to obey, and they obeyed none of them. They condemned Jesus in spite of all of the ways in which it should have been prevented by the law. And in so doing, he proved that Jesus was talking about him when he called him the beast when he said i am the son of man and thereby implication called his government the beast called the sanhedrin a beastly government a government of men an evil government a corrupt government and so when christ was killed that was him being crowned that is the point of daniel chapter 7 and that is why christ used that that phrase right before his condemnation and the same thing happened with pilate pilate pretended that he was freeing himself from responsibility. But nevertheless, he was the only one who could have condemned Christ to death. He said, I find no fault in this just man. Nevertheless, I'm going to now send him to be executed. Therefore, because I find no fault in him and I'm still willing to kill him, I also am falling into the definition of a corrupt government of man. And so what was Christ doing is he's walking to his place of execution, but he's exposing the fact, the beastly nature of the governments of men and, and the, the Hebrew Sanhedrin and the prefecture of Rome in particular. He was exposing them and therefore triumphing over them. He was never meant to conquer them physically. What he was meant to do was to show everyone this is the way that God rules. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's weakness, it's meekness, and it's humility instead of power and strength and force. And here is what a beastly man-made government looks like. So I'm going to expose the nature of God, and I'm going to expose the nature of man in my victory procession towards the cross. And then when I die for all of you, I'm going to take all of your debts, and I'm going to nail that to the cross and, dis- and thereby destroy it. It'll be gone forever. And in so doing, as Paul is saying, Christ will unify all of us with God again. We don't have to be subject to beastly governments. We don't have to treat each other in unjust ways, in corrupt ways, in selfish ways. We don't have to give way to this beast within all of us that would take advantage of others. So Christ had the nature of God within himself, and he was unwilling to take advantage even of that greatest of strengths. Instead, he sacrificed it and took upon him the flesh and reenacted the fall and then reversed it. These, this is the combined meaning of these two poems in uh, Philippians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 1. And then the culmination is in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul calls the, the Via Dolorosa, the, the execution of Christ, he calls it his victory procession. And he says he led them captive. And it was because he was exposing, he was exposing the truth. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie, this is an M. Night Shyamalan movie. And you may or may not be a fan. He's a filmmaker. But uh, a few years ago, many years ago, there was a a movie called Unbreakable. And uh, if you want to skip the next minute or so, I'm about to give you some spoilers about that movie. But um, there's a a character, a main character, who's got very fragile uh, constitution. They call him Mr. Glass because his bones, he has this condition where his bones break easily. And at the end, we discover he's, he he knows if I'm so weak, there's got to be someone who's correspondingly strong. That's his belief. And therefore he kills people. He causes disasters in order to find a superhero. It's actually a superhero movie. And at the end, you discover, and, and uh, Samuel L. Jackson, who's this evil character, he says, now that I know who you are, when he finds Bruce Willis, who's the superhero, says, now that I know who you are, now we can finally realize who I am. And that is, uh, that is exactly what Paul's doing. I, I, I bring in that example to illustrate the point. Now that we know who Christ is, the Son of Man, we can know who everyone else is. That's what a victory procession means. It's, it's not a victory in the sense that it's a military victory. That's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus ever was going to be. It's the sense that he exposes. Now that we know who he is, we know who we are. We are the people who need the redemption of a Messiah who's willing to reconcile us with God and bring us back through a temple-like experience where the blood of the Lamb, it justifies us and it unifies us with God and exalts us so that we can once again live with him. Now, I believe both of these poems are six verses, each. I could be a little bit off, but so together there are 12 verses and then two verses in Colossians chapter 2 about Jesus Christ and his victory procession. So a total of 14 verses, Paul has not only pulled in several chapters of the Old Testament and uh, by reference and incorporated their ideas into his teachings, but he's also taught the entire plan of salvation and the gospel and explained the nature of Christ and the condescension of God. So if I've talked a little bit faster and I seem a little bit more excited in this lesson, it's because I'm just in awe of what Paul was able to do with these three different passages and how he was able to tie them together. Just uh, as another indication, uh, some of the possible references. Now, I mentioned Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. Man is destined to rule. I mentioned Genesis chapter 3, that... Uh, someone who is in the image of a man becomes subject to death. I mentioned Daniel chapter 7. I mentioned Mark chapter 14, which may or may not have been written before Paul wrote uh, either of these epistles. I I mentioned John chapter 1, which was definitely not written yet. In addition, it's probably true that Paul was uh, pulling ideas from the 8th Psalm, which is Another, uh, along with Genesis chapter 1, it's another expression of the idea that the Son of Man has dominion over the earth, and the second psalm is a chapter, is a, is a scripture where God gives the fullness, as, uh, as he expresses in, in verse 19, that God gives the fullness to his Son, he, he gives of his fullness, and it's found then in his Son, and David sings about that in the second psalm. So not only are these poems saturated with testimony about the love of Christ, but they're also steeped in the history, knowledge, and in a deep understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures. So now Paul continues his epistle to the Colossians. Right, he's he's testified powerfully of Christ, and then he he finishes chapter two by saying, "You've died with Christ, and you're set free now. Uh, you, you the Colossians that." Um, in fact, Paul never actually met the, the, dwell, the people who dwelt in Colossae. It was close to Laodicea, which is a city that he did visit. But he's writing to people that he didn't personally teach, but he's saying, look, before you learned about Christ, what were you worshiping? You were worshiping Zeus, you were worshiping Aphrodite, you were worshiping Mars. You were worshiping all of the things of this world. You were idolaters. And so when he says the ruling spirits of the universe are the elemental spirits... He's saying, you don't, you're no longer polytheists. You, when you started worshiping Christ, uh, he set you free from all of this sinful sort of idolatry that you were following. So why are you still living? Why are you still acting? Why are you still looking back as if you belong to this world? Why, do, why are you obeying things? Why are you worrying about people putting strictures on you that exist under the law of Moses? You're free in Christ. And then in chapter 3, expounds on that idea and basically says, look, Christ, is one, Christ wants you to live a heavenly existence. And I'm not talking about when you die, you go to heaven. What I'm saying is Christ has already created heavenly possibilities for you to live right now. All you have to do is, is put the old man away that existed before you were baptized. You, when you were baptized, you were lowered into the water, and then you were raised up in newness of life. And I, I love this chapter because it basically says, I understand that you still have these earthly desires, but that's the old man, right? You still have temptations. You're still subject to the, the thorns in the flesh, as Paul described it uh, in an earlier epistle. But we're past that now. Christ has made you his. You now live in newness of life. So make a choice to put the old man away and put the new man in front of you. You can live in the new man. And what that means is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, you, you've got to put to death the earthly desires at work, such as sexual immorality, indecency, lust, evil passions, greed. And because of such things, God's anger is going to come upon you if you don't obey him. At one time you lived subject to those desires, but now you must get rid of all of these things. You're the people of God. He loves you. He chose you. And therefore, you got to clothe yourselves with the uh, with the with the virtues and the attributes of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the the point of the first part of chapter three. Now, the end of chapter three, Paul is going to express some ideas about relationships that he uh, that we talked about at length last week in the in our discussion of Ephesians. And so, rather than do it again, I'll just point you to that. But he's talking about the way that um, wives will submit themselves to their husbands, and husbands will have responsibility for wives, children need to be obedient, slaves and masters relate to each other. Um, we went over this at length, and uh, so if, if anybody's hurt by anything that's said here, you know, specifically, wives, submit yourself to your husbands, please go back and listen to the, the discussion that we had in the, in the epistle to the Ephesians, because I think that might help. Finally, we talked about the slaves obey your masters idea. Right? And, we, and I, I said at the time that, uh, that Ephesians chapter 5 was used to justify slavery in the, in the United States South before the Civil War. And I said, there's no way Paul would have actually approved of slavery as they lived it in the South back then. So in support of that idea, there is a character called Onesimus. And he is a, he's an escaped slave, and he becomes a messenger for Paul. He's with Paul in prison, and then he carries this letter to the Colossians. And so Paul recommends Onesimus and says, those of you who receive him, receive him as a brother. Now, as an escaped slave, he was subject to the law. And Paul, instead of saying, you know, he'd, he'd already given counsel to slaves uh, or servants, depending on how it's translated. They weren't slaves as we knew them in uh, the American South thank goodness. Um, but Paul says, slaves, you know, be obedient to your masters, be willing, be willing servants because you've committed to do it. But Paul doesn't say, uh, Ev- Onesimus, you need to return to your master. What Paul, what Paul says is, Onesimus, an escaped slave, should now be considered a brother to you all. It was against the law for Paul to say this, and it was against the law for Onesimus to be free. And yet Paul supported that decision. So that's just one more piece of evidence that when we think we understand what's culturally going on, we have to make sure that we're looking very carefully at everything that's happening. So Paul, on the one hand, seems to support the institution of slavery as was practiced in ancient Greece, and then on the other hand, uh, seems to, to be against it. So we have to make sure that we're capturing Paul as he really was and not Paul as he seems to be or that that Christian detractors would make him out to be so look I'm really glad we got to discuss Philippians and Colossians together because and I and I recommend that you read and reread uh, the, the the messianic poems found in Philippians chapter 2 and in Colossians chapter 1 and then read again the description of of what Christ did for us and what he did for the world in exposing his enemies in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And read that. Go to BibleHub.com and read that in a few different translations and find the different ways that this beautiful imagery has been expressed. I'll read it one more time for you. He canceled the unfavorable record of our debts with its binding rules and did away with it completely by nailing it to the cross. And on that cross... Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession. Jesus, Jesus didn't come to earth to end our suffering. Following Jesus was never a guarantee that our lives would be easy. He was not that kind of Messiah. What he did was he made it clear The difference between good and evil, the difference between compassion and corruption, the difference between pride and condescension. And when we understand exactly what Jesus accomplished and exactly what he set out to do through his condescension, then we can see the meaning of the tree of life, that it is the love of God that is the most desirable of all the gifts of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.